Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some news about no more Blu-ray players. Some sci-fi is wandering its way over to Netflix, the Osaka Asian Film Festival, and our films for this week, Alita Battle Angel and The Wandering Earth. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk in the slums under Zalem, I mean Hong Kong, is Mr. Kevin Ma. <laughs> Hi there, everyone. Hey there, Paul. How's it going on your end? All right. Uh, you know, just an- another week. Uh, got out to see some movies this week and been watching some stuff at home and, uh, you know, just doing the same old, same old. How about yourself? Well, I haven't been seeing many movies. Um, I've been really busy um, doing a lot of translation work. Um, of course, you know, Film Art is coming up. So there are a couple of events, including the Hong Kong Film Festival, um, Asian Film Awards, and also, of course, Film Art. And I've been busy doing translation work um, tied to all three events. So it's been pretty tiring on my end. I haven't been able to get out and see much movies Um mm. So, yeah. And also, of course, because it's afternoon and New Year, so there aren't many releases uh, coming. But um, hopefully I'll be able to get back out there in uh, March. All right. For now, uh, let's get into this week's news. So let me throw it back over to you, Kevin. What's on for this week? Over here at the news desk. um, So, of course... Those here on the show, we've had very, very long debates about streaming, which I'm sure will continue for episodes and episodes to come. But this week, we're talking about physical media. Actually, both me and you, Paul, we're both huge owners of physical media, right? I mean, you, we both have a huge collection of physical media as much as we love streaming. Um, but unfortunately, Samsung um, this past week uh, announced that it is lo- no longer um, making Blu-ray players. Um, they're actually not the first company to announce this. Um, Oppo, um, which is a company I think based in China, I think I have to make sure. Um, they and they were, um, they announced that they stopped making uh, Blu-ray players, and that was a huge crush because physical media now tends to be a, a collector's um, a collector's thing, right? Having mostly collectors buy physical media and um, uh, home theater enthusiasts as well. And Oppo actually has been a huge brand for uh, home media um, enthusiasts. They're a very high-end brand. Their players cost a fortune because of all the features they have, especially those that appeal to home theater enthusiasts. So when Oppo, um, uh, I think it's Oppo, I'll double check, but Oppo also makes phones, by the way. Um, Oppo, when they announced that they weren't, they were going to stop making uh, Blu-ray player, it was a huge deal um, because it's very popular among home theater enthusiasts, especially um, here in Hong Kong. Um, and I guess that was 
sort of the beginning of the end. Although I, I really don't want to say the end, though, Paul. I know Samsung is a huge maker of Blu-ray players, and I know the reason why they stopped making is that they're blaming streaming for it. Um, but I think there will still be a demand for physical media. I don't know. What do you think? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I will. I'm kind of in between right now. I'm very fully ready to make the jump over to digital libraries. But here's the problem: the old media hasn't, you know, the old old titles especially for, you know, Asian cinema, haven't really kept up in terms of being able to access stuff in libraries and things. And the ones that we do have, they tend, they're, they're, they're proving more and more to be spotty. Uh, there was an article a few weeks back where it was, and I, I'm, it's escaping me now, but it's like one of the big digital library providers. I, I don't want. I don't want to say ultraviolet, or maybe it was an ultraviolet provider. You know, it was one of these ones where you would buy the physical media and you would get a digital code inside, so that you could have a digital one in a library. Mm-hmm. That they've closed their doors, right? They've they've gone filed for bankruptcy and and they're going to be done. You know, and so it just calls into question that if you are somebody who was really fully invested in going to the digital library route and you're seeing stuff like this happen, it gives you pause and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, if I really want to have a library that's mine, you know, a lot of people have already written about the fact that if you buy stuff on iTunes and you buy stuff on Amazon, it's not really yours. It's more like a long-term lease or a long-term rental. And very often, you know, I've looked for titles that I've seen previously on Amazon that are now no longer on Amazon because they've since lost the rights. It's gone to somewhere else. So if you've previously bought something, I know they're supposed to keep it and you're supposed to still be able to access it. But for somebody new, you know, it's like, well, now you can't go there. You've got to go somewhere else and it might or might not be available because of, you know, various contractual obligations or various rights issues. And and I get that. But as you know, so we're we're kind of in this weird kind of middle area. It seems like, on the one hand, the streaming platforms are consolidating. You don't have a lot of choices. You've got a few big powerhouses, but even that seems a little bit sketchy. And at the same time, physical media seems to be shrinking up because you've got stories like this. You know, it's not necessarily the end of Blu-ray players, but you know, we could be headed in that direction. One of the things I noticed when I was in Hong Kong a couple weeks ago, was going around and trying to buy Blu-rays. The options were extremely limited because we've, as we've talked about before, we've lost the big chain shops, Hong Kong Records and HMV. Those used to be, you know, safe go-to places that had large libraries to to, to go through for both DVDs and Blu-rays. The places that I now frequent, they had new movies on DVD, but they did not have Blu-rays in stock for most of the stuff, which I found to be kind of surprising. And I'm guessing that maybe it's more the same, that the population now just isn't that interested in buying, you know, Blu-ray. So you've got a few shops. You know, I, I had the good fortune to stop by Cult Movie, which was a great and amazing experience. And, you know, it's it's nice to see a, a specialty shop dedicated to the love of movie fandom and I could have wasted too much money in there, so it was a dangerous place to go. But they had stuff, you know, and, and they, they did have stuff in, in both formats, whereas 
other shops that used to be dependable shops did not. And so um, I, for me, I, I just, I've noticed a big shrinkage in the places you can go for, you know, physical media and the choices that you have now in the few places that, that seem to be left. And I, you know, again, I know for a lot of the population there, they don't really care if they can stream it, you know, online through a China service, they're okay with that. The problem for me is that with something like that, yeah, I can see it, but I don't have the options, right? Uh, even if it does come with English subtitles, which a lot of it does not, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you learn better Chinese, you know, work on your Chinese, you can use these sites fine. But even so, if you want to hear it in an original Cantonese dub, you don't have that option. I, I ran into this when I was looking for uh, the King of Comedy, right? Before I was going to go see the new King of Comedy, I wanted to watch the old King of Comedy again. And I have it on a disc, but I, the disc is in storage in Florida, and I was in Hong Kong. And I was like, well, where can I, where can I watch this? And it's not on Amazon, not on Netflix, not on any of my usual channels. I did find it on Yoku, but it was the Mandarin dub only with no other options to switch it out of that. So, And here too, even if you buy into the digital platforms in the U.S., Netflix typically does not offer any kind of special features on the stuff that they have. Um, maybe a trailer, uh, but certainly not you know behind-the-scenes stuff that you're going to get. Sometimes Amazon has that stuff. Um, more often than not, iTunes has special features, but here again, too, are you really secure in the notion that going forward, you're going to have a long-term library under, under these companies? It seems like, yeah, now, you know, nothing could rock the foundations of an Amazon or an iTunes, but you've seen stuff change in the media industry before on a whim. So I, you know, anything's possible. So it just gives me pause to think about, you know, which way we're going to go. I still love collecting for certain things. I, I like having the physical media library, but anymore, where can we get it? I mean, yeah, we've still got a couple online stores, but more and more that's just becoming a monopoly. And is that always going to be around too? That's, that's a question I keep asking myself. Well, in Hong Kong, um, I see a division of two things. I mean, you have home theater enthusiasts and film buffs who always buy physical media. But actually, let's face it, even film buffs in Hong Kong don't buy physical media because they can't one, they can't afford it. The two, there's no space. Um, so you got people who are used to buying Blu-rays and they already sort of set in. They have certain stores they go to. I have two certain stores that I go to. I don't go to the chain stores because we all know everyone who seriously collects these things know that XMV and the chains are often overpriced because you're also paying for the rent in those malls um, and a huge amount of staff. Um that they're needed to to stock headphones so there was an easy there was you know people who, who are serious enthusiasts and serious collectors don't go to hmv because the prices are disadvantaged disadvantageous um and and i even i go so the shops that i usually go to have been around for the last decade that i've been in hong kong they're doing fine they still have a lot of foot traffic on weekends because those are um frequented by collectors they know where to go to get the best prices um so in that sense i don't feel sorry for say hong kong records or um hmv and what happened was that is the um is that i think general population now thanks to video on demand thanks to um digital thanks to piracy whatever 
is that the mainstream, the main, the the people who usually um, the mass audience, they've stopped buying media. Um, they, I think, ownership doesn't matter to them anymore. To them, it's instant access, and um, that doesn't with Netflix and all these video on demand options. Perhaps they don't need to own that thing anymore in order to own it, in order to watch it anytime they want. Um, in fact, I, I do find it more convenient to just go on Netflix and find a film that I need to see if it happens to be on there rather than digging out a disc um, that I have buried in five different stacks on the floor. Um, so I understand. I mean, that's how it is. It's really sad. Um, but I think those of us who do still collect, and I know that a lot of the Asian film fans who are outside of Hong Kong or outside of the region who listens to the show, I know they say, wait, what about me? I do it. I still buy Asian physical media. What about me? Why doesn't my opinion count? And the fact is, we are in a niche world. Let's face it. We are part of a niche. There aren't that many of us out there. There are many of us out there. We can fill a, a pub or something on a weekend. <laughs> Okay, but at the end yeah. of the day, we're, we don't make the difference that um, the the general audience, the mass audience do. I know that if we talk within our own bubble, yeah, we still all collect media and we say, what about us? And we, we don't we count? No, we don't. Because the people I, the people I talk to in the office uh, that I work with, um, they don't collect media. They just want to get the movie. They see it once and then that's it. They're done. Um, and that's the general direction because so many different entertainment options out there is that so that people aren't that likely to rewatch something. And if they can't find it on Netflix, they can't find it on Amazon, they can't get instant access to it, they give up. They say, oh, I'll just move on to um, my queue of 50 TV series after watching them in the US. Um, and that's sad. I mean, that's how it is. I prefer to own physical media because one, physical media has a space to present a film in the best possible um, video resolution and, of course, best audio. I don't have state-of-the-art um, home theater equipment. I do have a home theater, but I don't have the best one. But still, I prefer to watch those on physical media because they they, they give the best presentation of a film, um, at least under technical limitations. Um, and in that sense, I think home theater, there will always be home theater enthusiasts. There will always be people who own um insane amount of um, audio video equipment who wants to chase the next big thing um 4k 8k whatever and i think that will continue and i think physical media will continue to cater to those guys maybe they will make fewer copies for example um um arrow um who made uh, Waterworld, the new Waterworld blu-ray and the apartment blu-ray they actually had trouble keeping up with orders so they're making these niche products. They limit the amount they make, but then they then they come into the happy problem where their demand was so big among enthusiasts and collectors that they needed to um, uh, make new copies that they ran out of supply, and that's a happy problem. And um, and I guess at the end of the day, that you can't mass produce these things anymore um, unless you sell it for super cheap um, for Black Friday, like the way that Amazon does with with their deals. Um, but I, I, I think that physical media is going to stay, but I think it will be more and more become a collector's thing. And if that means um, better cases, increasing prices for those editions, it, it's going to hurt. But, you know, whatever it takes to keep physical media alive, I'm willing to continue to uh, to support it. That said, um, with the Maria Kondo way of living now, um, even I feel sort of <laughs> the pressure to buy less disc. To be yes. honest, I have five stacks that I can't fit anymore. Um, even I have become 
uh, sort of bit pressured to start just buying digital versions of things, but I feel insecure. Like, I buy them in hopes of there will be a better edition, physical media edition coming out so I can actually own it. But I realize that mine is a very OCD thing, maybe only a few of us have, and that's is the painful truth I think we all have to accept. Yeah. Ask yourself if your Hong Kong LaserDisc collection, collection sparks joy. And if it does not, sell it to me very cheap, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't spark. Well, I don't have a laser display here, so I, I'm afraid I can't take it. But um, I was I was taking a whole stack of discs to uh, Sino Center in Mongkok. And that included like two seasons of um, House of Cards on Blu-ray and included Black Panther, a 4K disc of Black Panther. It was like like 12 or 13 discs. Yes, in there, there are some Taiwan DVDs that you can't even buy in Hong Kong. And all I got for is like 350 bucks, which is um, about like $40. Yeah. I mean, Black Panther itself probably costs about 30. And they're like, yeah, TV series don't, or don't, 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 they're not, they don't have any value. Yeah, no. Yeah. So what can I say? Yeah, that's the state of physical media right now. And uh, we'll report more as uh, things change. All right, the next bit of news, um, speaking of streaming, um, a film that we won't be owning on physical media outside of China, well, probably ever, is The Wandering Earth, the film that we're talking about a bit later today. Um, Netflix announced that or finally confirms that it has bought uh, rights to the film. It didn't go into very specific about how many countries it's going to show. It, it vaguely suggests that it's going to be a global release. Um, they don't have a release date. Although I would assume that it would come out within several months. Um, but anyway, Wandering Earth, this big Chinese sci-fi blockbuster, has been dominating the headlines because of the box office that it's making. Um, it's going to now on Netflix, so any of you who are curious about the film probably won't have to wait too long to see it now. Um, yeah, Paul, Paul, what do you what do you think? You've seen the film. Um, what do you think about its um, potential on on Netflix? I think it's it's. I'm glad it's going there. Although I would I I still expect because I think it was through Wellgo that it got released stateside. I think they're the ones who usually uh, give a, get give us a lot of the China films, which makes me think that there will at least be a physical media release because like I'm thinking like Wolf Warrior 2 and Swordmaster and some of the other stuff they ended up I think uh were under their titles have uh you know both DVD and pressed Blu-rays uh, fairly cheaply on you know things like Amazon now so um you know I I I don't know if Netflix is going to you know because it's on Netflix it'll be an exclusive thing or not uh, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see you know what the what the contract actually you know, limit, limits out. I'm hopeful that uh, there'll be some decent uh, physical media versions outside of China available. And uh, um, Unfortunately, the uh, company that released Wandering Earth in the U.S. is CMC, China oh, Media CMC. Capital. And, okay. um, and those guys don't do physical releases mm. as far as I know. I think there is a direct distribution deal uh, rather than, uh, than a distributor selling to a distributor deal. Well, you guys get it this week, right? At the end of this week. Yes, Echo managed Kong, to so. yeah. Echo managed to put in a, a last minute deal and just announced the release a week ahead. Um, so now I'm wondering if it's going to end up on Netflix in Hong Kong because Echo has a deal. Um, but you know, but the thing is, Echo has worked with Roma on uh, worked with Netflix on releasing Roma on the big screen in Hong Kong. So this could be this may be one of those deals um i might not be able to see it because um i have a traveling schedule and i won't be able to catch it before i go 
Um, so I'm actually I'm really hoping it lands on Netflix because I would like to see the film. And if I miss the theatrical window, um, it becomes very difficult to cash films here in Hong Kong now if you're searching for a specific film. Um, and, you know, it's it's not as easy to to get our hands on those films once theatrical is over. So um, I really hope that uh, it does land on Netflix and I'm excited to see it. All right. Our final bit of news this week, uh, film festival news from Osaka. Well, uh, not just Osaka, because I got to do some promotion here. Um, this is not a paid advertisement, but I do have a stake in um, at least the first festival I'm going to talk about. Cinema Asia um, in Amsterdam, Amsterdam is uh, taking place from the 5th to the 10th of March. Uh, hopefully that is when the show will go up. Um, and we've got a pretty I'm a, the, the greater I'm officially the greater China advisor of the festival or I am or what the fest, uh, website says. I'm the Chinese film advisor. But actually, quite a few titles, uh, non-Chinese titles, I, I put, I help um, at least bring to the attention of our artistic director Maggie Lee. Um, so uh, we have a pretty strong program this year. Thirty-five films. Um, uh, the competition, uh, which only allows first and second time director, has some really, really strong films. Um, a Boy in Sun Green, a Korean film that I really think was the gem of last year's Busan Film Festival and really hasn't been seen much by outside of Korea or outside of people who went to Busan. Um, that's definitely worth seeing as my top-notch recommendation. Same for Ave Mariam. It's an Indonesian film um, about uh, a nun that falls in love with a priest. Um it's very Wong Kar esque and I think it's totally worth seeing. Uh, Father is a Taiwanese um, documentary about a puppet master. Um, we also have four episodes of Folklord, which is the HBO Asia series that just landed on HBO in the U.S. Uh, Guan, a Malaysian film about um, a man who has an autistic brother and trying to take care of him. I think it's very, very good for, for a genre. Um also, some Southeast Asian film. We have Run to the Beach, which was directed by um, one of Indonesia's top directors. I think it's a very charming story about um, kids, you know, urban kids versus countryside kids and that sort of division. Um, we're opening with Aruna and her palette, um, the latest film by um, Indonesian filmmaker Edwin. Um, it also recently just played at Berlin. Um, and we're closing with the European premiere of The Lady Improper, the latest um Filmed by Hong Kong director Jesse Jung and starring Charlene in her second Category 3 film. Um, oh, I did the subtitles for that, but that has nothing to do with whether the film was why the film was picked. So please come and check out the program. Um, the website is um, cinemaasia.nl, um, 1A only. Um, so uh, C I N E M A S I A cinemaasia.nl as I said in the last episode I will be attending the festival in Amsterdam this year so if you're in the region um, I will be there for the entire festival so um, please contact me if you'd like to meet up um, and uh, do come to the festival it's a great festival uh, we work very hard on the lineup um, please do come and the other um, festival that I'd like to give a shout out to is the Osaka Asian Film Festival which I've been attending for the past two years um, I will not be attending this year because um, I have to be back in Hong Kong for the rest of the month um, but they've announced their program this year and it's again very strong they're opening with a local film this year called Randan the comings and goings of a, 
on a Kyoto tram, so it's very much a local story because Kyoto is very close to Osaka, and they're closing with the Jap- Japanese premiere of a Vietnamese film called Daddy Issues, a remake of um, well, it's an adaptation of a Japanese novel. It's also directed by a Japanese director uh, in Vietnam, so it's a pretty big deal. Um, they also the competition, um, the 14 film competition includes quite a few um, films you already know. Um, they have, of course, the Lady Improper. They also have Stu Human, the the film that's been nominated for eight Hong Kong Film Awards. They have G Affairs, which I think it's a very strong contender for Best New Director Award at Hong Kong Film Awards this year. It's a very special film. I can't say I love the film, but it's a very special film. Um, it's a very strong, strong debut from a director, uh, a very, uh, with a very interesting visual style. The Crossing, which um, recently played in Berlin, it's a film about a girl who who brings iPhone from Hong Kong over the border to Shenzhen, um, which is a, so it's a very topical um, story, and I hear it's very good, actually. Um, outside of competition, you they also have, of course, every year, like this, uh, every year they have a Hong Kong program, and this year they include uh, Misbehavior, the new Pang Chun film, I believe is the first film festival that it's going to outside of its release in Taiwan and Hong Kong and uh, other places in Asia. But it is the first time it's playing on the festival circuit, so it's a pretty big deal. Um, they also have the international premiere of a indie indie film called A Woman Is a Woman, which covers the same territory as Tracy, but of course it's done in a much more indie way. I haven't seen the film yet, but that is very interesting. Um, and just a generally, a, and of course the Taiwan program this year. Every year they have a Taiwan program, so this year's Taiwan program includes Dear X. Which I have to say is already playing at Netflix. They have Father, which I just said is an excellent um, documentary. But the one that I really love is this short film called Two Nine Two Three. Is the um, is the latest short film by a director named Sunny Yu, who last made a film called The Kids. Um, it was a public TV production, but the feature film version um, played at few festivals, and I feel like. This film, this 40-minute film, is even stronger than that, and it comes with a really knockout punch of an ending. Um, I really think it's a it's excellent film. If there's any chance to see it, Cinema Asia actually played it as part of its Taiwan um, Taiwan Road Show um, back last August when we because I saw the film in the Taipei Film Festival in um, July, and I said we gotta get this film, and we all love it. Um, so if you have a chance to go to Osaka Film Festival, if you're in Osaka, if you're in Japan, um, do go down and, and take a look at the, the program. All right. That is going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back, our first review for this week, a little bit of East, a little bit of West with Alita Battle Angel. So welcome back. So for our kind of West screen, but based on East screen stuff review for this uh, first film this week, it's Alita Battle Angel, a film that has been around for a long time in the making of and finally got made. And Kevin's going to tell us about it. Yeah. So 
Alita Battle Angel is um, based on, I think it's a manga, right, Paul? It was yes. a manga then became an anime. Yes. It's called Gunmoon. Um, even though it's spelled weirdly in English, I'm not sure why. Um, or is it Gunnam? No. I think it's Gun- my Japanese. Gunnam. 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 I know, but it's... Okay, I, I, I'm going to stop throwing my <laughs> Battle Japanese Battle Angel Alita is the English title. <laughs> yeah, that's the English title. I'm not even going to attempt the Japanese title anymore. Um, but it's the adaptation of that series. Have you read the original material, Paul? Yes. Okay, we can then you can come come in and, and throw in your two takes or two cents a little bit later. Um, but James Cameron originally wanted to direct this adaptation. He ended up not doing it. He ended up writing the script, or he gave the script that he wrote to Robert Rodriguez, and he served as a producer of this. Uh, him and um, John Landau, his producer, from, his producer from Avatar, they ended up producing the film rather than directing it. Um, and uh, of course, those of you who are you know, familiar with the with the source material won't have to listen to the next part. But here comes the story. Um, set several centuries in the future, the abandoned Alita is found in the scrapyard of Iron City by Ido, a compassionate cyber doctor who takes the unconscious cyborg to his clinic. When Alita awakens, she has no memory of who she is, nor does she have any recognition of the world she finds herself in. As Alita learns to navigate her new life and the treacherous streets of Iron City, Ido tries to shield her from her mysterious past. Um, so it's a fervent anime and manga non-fan. Okay, I'm not. I'm not like. I don't go out of my way to ignore manga and anime. It's just that I really have no time to take in everything. I, I think my geekdom has its limits because I need things like sleep and work um so i have no time for too many of these things um so i have not seen the original material uh so don't don't you know so my opinion is that's where it's coming from okay um but i did come across the first episode of the anime recently um there were a lot there's of course been discussed a lot among um at least locals here um the box office in in Taiwan and Hong Kong, while not spectacular, but it's been pretty strong thanks to the local, um, the Lunar New Year holiday slot that it got. So it's been pretty popular. And um, I've I, someone posted a link to the the first episode of the anime, and I watched about 10, 15 minutes of it. And wow, um, I was surprised how close the filmmakers stuck to the original um, in terms of the the plot. I guess the story structure. Um, recreating certain images from the original, especially the opening. Um, they certainly showed more reverence to it than I expected. Um, although I don't think that is a criteria for an adaptation to be good. Um, an adaptation for an adaptation to be good is just stand on its own, as its own story. Um, I don't think adherence to the original material is uh, necessarily a criteria to for a film to be good. So even if it didn't do so, um, I wouldn't have liked the film less or more. Um, but I do appreciate that the the effort they made to to recreate some of those images um, for fans. Um, I suppose one debate that always pops up with a film like this, this film was made with very heavy motion capture. For example, the entire character of Alita was done with mocap. Mo- um, the actual actor who was who has the balls on her face and all, the, all those cameras, that's Rosa Salazar, and I think she did a fantastic job. But I think one debate that will always pop up with a, with a film like this is Uncanny Valley, being that whether the character looks hollow 
um, a character that's supposed to look human, whether it looks creepily hollow or not. And I know that that's been popping up since. Mocap films like um, Polar Express, mainly the films of Marvel Zemeckis, I suppose. Um, and uh, I think that, and of course, Avatar was a huge leap forward for mocap. Um, and of course, as was Lord of the Rings. Um, but I don't think that debate needs to apply here because um the character of alita i mean i get don't i mean correct me if i'm wrong paul she is supposed to be a cyborg right i mean her, at least her physical shell is supposed to be a cyborg right she's not supposed to be human yeah she's right? a she's a she's a humanoid uh, she's, she's kind of right? she's kind of like uh the uh major character in uh, ghost in the shell the body's a frame of you know cybernetic parts but the brain is human right so i feel like her skin i know that so here she has like big eyes is anime eyes and she has these um almost computer animated skin um but i feel like that character doesn't need to look human because if it looks too human like you know the way that perhaps scar johansson looked in goes in a shell um it would ruin the, the idea that she's supposed to be a cyborg. But of course, you can't, you know, go with, you know, traditional 3D animation or something like that because then it would look way too fake. It has to integrate with the human world that it, it, it's set in. So I feel like they they struck the right balance here. Yes, she's not. She is a robot, so she's not supposed to look human. So yeah, those skin is too perfect. Um, the eyes are too big. Um, but I can buy it. Yes, it's a bit of a shock at first. You don't get used to it right in the beginning but as time when you watch the film you you stop thinking about it too much um and i feel like knowing the character isn't supposed to be completely human it has human traits therefore the motion capture and the fact that the, the physical nature of the character isn't completely human um that's why i think the the the, the, the approach they chose here is fine and I think even if there is uncanny valley going on here, it's intentional. And I feel like it's totally fine because the whole idea is that she sort of even the character itself is searching for her own humanity, um, despite being a, a cyborg. Um, so for me, it works. It works fine. Um, the world building here, I think, is fantastic. Of course, a lot of money was was poured in, um, you know, cyberpunk I know it tends to be, uh, you know, films like Ghost in a Shell, which was like an attempt at cyberpunk, has this um, aesthetic that's very dark and danky, you know, like the entire thing is set in a sewer, even when there are outdoor scenes, right? It's like always cloudy, this whole Blade Runner aesthetic. But I think here, because, you know, there is sunlight, there is um, a people, um, there is daylight, Um and I feel like the world building here is a bit more convincing because I don't think cyberpunk always has to be dark and danky. Um, so I feel like they built a, an incredible world here um, for what it is. Um, and for, of course, cyberpunk stories are often violent. So this is way more violent than anyone might expect for people who don't watch a genre because there are some very cruel things that happen to robots. And the only reason they get passed with PG-13 because they are robots. But... As a kid, you know, as someone who grew up watching these sci-fi things, kids don't think about it much. So I would be cautious. I would ex exercise caution as a parent because you don't want your kids thinking that their best friend is a robot and you can tear off its arm and not have to worry about any consequence. So 
be very careful. It's actually quite violent, even those 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 that violence is committed against robots, especially uh, except for one really gruesome thing that happens towards the end of the film that I was surprised got past uh, the censors. Um, so it's a very violent story. Be careful of that. Um, I know there's been a lot of criticism in the West. The film critics aren't really buying the film because um, the script is sort of its weakness that it really takes on more story than it could handle. And I agree. And I think the reason for that is that because it's based on anime, it's based on long form storytelling. So it's very episodic. Um, James Cameron admits that the rollerball sequence was adapted from another part of the story and brought up to this one. So they, they did put in extra plot than, than what it was in the original material. Um, and and another complaint is that the entire thing is a setup for a sequel that may not even happen. Um, so I think that's a, one huge issue of it is that they because they're working with long form storytelling, a uh, 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 source material, they end up making a film like they're building, a, they're making a sequel to Cold War or something. <laughs> you know, like like they they spend the entire film setting up a sequel that might not even come. Um, and I can I can understand why people might feel miffed about that. Is it still possible to do a sci-fi story without setting up a sequel that can be a standalone thing? I don't know. Um, maybe that's the only way that they can ensure um, a certain finance to work to get certain budget. I don't know. I'm thinking about that cameo at the end specifically. I feel I wonder: Do we need to see that cameo? Do we need to see that character in this film? Does it leave too many? Um, too many plot threads open. Um, I'll let Paul come in because he's read the the origin material. Tell me if there's more to look forward to than what we have here. Um, and if there is no sequel make made, I would be a bit disappointed because they've set up or they've set they've left so much unresolved. Um, there is a central romance in the film that actually played a more pivotal role than I expected. Unfortunately, that didn't really work for me. That's always been James Cameron's Achilles heel. Um, doing romance, um, even Titanic, I felt the romance. I mean, because Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio are such a lovable couple, but the actual romance itself on a script level, to me, wasn't really that convincing. And he still hasn't convinced me that he actually can do romance, but he keeps doing it. So what, what can I say? Um, the film also lacks a really wow scene. I think the rollerball scene was supposed to be it, but I felt it was um, a bit undercooked. Um, it was a bit too short. It didn't really deliver with me as much as I felt it could have. I mean, even Avatar had that huge, huge finale. Um, you know, James Cameron is known for doing huge action set pieces. And I feel that the rollerball sequence was a bit underwhelming here, even though I feel like it could have been, you know, maybe because I'm like, I was thinking like, oh, the pot raised in episode one, which is so fantastic that it almost overshadowed the rest of the really crappy movie. Um, here, I feel like that didn't deliver as much as I think the, the makers thought it should have. So do I mind seeing a sequel to this film? Not at all. I don't mind. I mean, I like I like what I saw. Um, I wasn't gaga over it. Um, but... Uh, I don't mind seeing where the story end up. Um, I hope Big Paul would come in and and perhaps raise my expectation to tell and tell me that the story gets even better than than what's here. 
Um, but I can understand why there wouldn't be one. It didn't do particularly well in the U.S. considering its budget. I think it costs like a like 175 million U.S. dollars, which is insane. Um, but um, it's done well in China. Uh, it's opened, I think, three days there already, and it's done pretty well. It's of course done okay um, here in Asia. I'm not sure about the rest of the world, and Japan still hasn't. I think it opened today or this weekend in Japan. Um, although I feel um, a bit reluctant to to say that it's going to do well there because you never know with foreign films in Japan. Um, so I don't know if it's going to happen. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I'm not holding my breath for it. And I'm not going to be the guy who goes and lines up to buy opening day tickets when a sequel does come out. I think that they are going to try and rein in the budget a little bit. Um and I don't know if they want James Cameron to get even more involved. He's doing like 50 Avatar movies, right? So he has no time to do anything other than than than, than Avatar. So he's I don't think he's going to take a bigger role in the sequel if it happens. So I'm not really holding my breath on um, uh, for it. Now, I don't know if anyone's asking this question, but could you imagine what would happen if James Cameron had directed it? I don't think that it would have been much better i think what they have now is pretty good considering the source material what they were given with it and of course they were given a huge budget to do what they did here um james cameron is not really a stylistic visionary the way say the wachowskis are or really scott once was so i don't think he would have really elevated the material to something that extraordinary he's really much of a technical guy so while i think the film test the, or it really pushes the the mocap technology to new heights but that's not something that the regular audience could relate to you know the whole idea is that the mocap is supposed to be invisible that you're not supposed to 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 notice the advances because the the, the job is to make the technology invisible so james cameron is not a guy who would create brand new um really to break something to use the way that Wachowski invented this new idea of editing in Speed Racer or the way that they use bullet time or the way that Ridley Scott really invented or created the cyberpunk aesthetic in mainstream American cinema. James Cameron is never going to do that. He's not a guy that does that. And I don't think that he would have made a much better movie than what we have right now. Um, obviously, it's a must-see for sci-fi fans. Um I, I think it deserves better than what it's getting now in the U.S. Um, I don't think it's much worse than the other tentpole movies that the Americans are getting. But I honestly didn't think it was that great. It's okay. It's okay. It's 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 fine for what it is. Um, so I didn't dislike it that much. Um, so if you like sci-fi films, if you think you're interested in this type of story, then I would say go see it. Um, if you're just not into sci-fi, then I don't think this is going to convert anyone. Paul? All right. So, yeah, I've read... You sound like you have a lot to unpack. I've read... I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I I have read the original manga. I read them back when they were officially getting released stateside. They were part of the early wave of sort of manga that was getting translated and released back in the the 90s. And I, I was big into this title back then. I've read the original nine volumes of that's the first sort of battle angel alita series there's a subsequent series called last order which i guess picks up after the the nine volumes and i've been meaning to get to those i just you know 
it's like Kevin said that you know, there's just so much out there and there's only so many hours in the day. And it was something that I loved back in the 90s. But as I moved forward into other other stuff, I just I, I never got back into reading. And I know there I think there's like two or three spinoffs as well, you know, and again, there's just no time. But uh, I did read the original nine and I, and I really liked them back in the day. And looking back on them now, I think, you know, because I did go back and I did some rereads um, in preparation for for the movie. I think that, it, you know, Battle Angel was trying to vie for similar space as Ghost in the Shell and maybe wasn't quite there in terms of um, some of the high concept stuff that he was trying, the author was trying to go for. I think visually his style appealed to a lot of people and that's what kind of got, caught the attention for a lot of fans and along with the central character and also caught James Cameron's attention. And some people may not remember, but James Cameron actually did a series called Dark Angel for two seasons that called that starred Jessica Alba, which was heavily inspired from um, from this property. So and I he, remember Dark Angel. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I gave up on it. Yeah, a lot of people did. That's why it got canceled. But uh, you know, that was sort of the central inspiration. Uh, th- this was sort of the central inspiration for for that. And there was a lot of rumors back then. I think that series launched in like 2000. That after doing that, he was going to go on to make, you know, a, a full on Battle Angel Lolita movie, and that had many fans, myself included, excited for a long time. And then. You know, he went to do other stuff, and, uh, you know, there was always this rumor in the background. And here we are, you know, almost two decades later, and it's finally getting done. Unfortunately for me, and I think for if you're a fan of the manga, it's not up to snuff in terms of, uh, you know, what, what's been done. And a lot's been done here. Um, yeah, they do do some nice homage moments to to the manga but they change a lot of stuff around and you know there's a lot of there's there's a whole character here um that i kind of don't want to spoil jennifer Connolly that doesn't actually exist in <laughs> the manga at all uh and a backstory that goes along with that you know and the daughter and all that and you know no that's just i mean okay i guess that's gonna appeal to an american audience but um yeah, and they just throw... It's like there are so many action peaks in this movie that I thought we were getting ready to close down and roll credits at least three times, three separate times. And I'm like, wait, they're still... They're going further. Um, and so, you know, it just felt overly long. And I know, I guess it's supposed to because it's, you know, they're they're vying for sci-fi blockbuster positioning. But I was just surprised at how much they changed and how much they tried to cram in. Because across the nine volumes, I think there's there are tonal shifts. So in like the first volume, it's about Alita, you know, and her relationship with, with uh, Dr. Ito and coming to grips with who she is and the mystery of her story, but also this deeper mystery as she gets built right and they kind of just because they created this daughter backstory they kind of pushed that to the side because you know in the manga it's really great because he's slowly putting her together he doesn't have like a fully formed body he's like piecing her together and at the same time there are these 
murders happening, you know, and it's like body parts and hmm. And so it's almost like this uh, Sherlock Holmes style mystery that's that's going on in in the first volume. And there's a real veal. And, and that was really interesting, you know, back in the day when I read it. Of course, I knew going into the film that they were going to unpack that. And, you know, but the way they did it, I was just like, oh, that, that just felt so rushed. And so, you know, so it like so little weight was given to it. And it felt like building that relationship and getting to that moment was fairly significant, you know, back back in when I read the comic. And I felt that way about so many things like, you know, like she rushes out and she's exploring the world and she's got this new body and she's made a new friend and oh, she's out doing roller motorball with her friends. And it's like one day has passed and it just felt like too, they were just, you know, racing forward too fast and there was more that could have been explored. And especially because it's trying to do that thing that ghost in the shell does. It's trying to get into these ideas about, what is the shell? What is the, what? What is the self? You know, and I think um, for the Battle Angel series, it was there's a lot of like talk later on about like karma and stuff, and it gets very Buddhist in some ways. And I don't think they're going to go for that angle if they do more movies. But again, touching on this idea of you know where do you lie? You know, as as a being, and and can that be? put into something else. And we've seen that explored, like, you know, this the show they did on Netflix last season, uh, Altered Carbon, I think, um, you know, also explore, exploring similar ideas as that. So here, you know, instead of going into a lot of that, they just kind of go for the flashy, showy stuff. Um, and it was just too much. And, you know, the motorball stuff that they did here doesn't, that doesn't really happen in the manga. She does go to play motorball, and that's like in, I want to say, volume three through six is when that happens. So that that was like prime for a part two, because that, that takes a to- completely tonal shift from the hunter-warrior stuff that she does early on. And that, I thought that was going to be, be the basis mostly for this first movie. But no, there they are doing motorball. And then you see her, when you see her at the end, she's actually finally in, you know, her motorball sort of racer form, which is different from her armored form. Which again, they changed that changed that up a bit too. Um, sort of the origin of that, which you know, I guess is okay. They wanted to give her some pals, and um, Hugo, or in the the comic, he was called Hugo with a Y, but here that's Hugo with an H. Um, she does have a relationship with him, I think, and that kicks off in I want to say volume two or volume three, and so so that arc is there. But I didn't feel the chemistry here, um, but between either of them. Um, and I, I was thinking too, I mean, you know, this is a science fiction. It's in a future, it's set, you know, in a future of the United States. It's revealed at a, a certain point in the manga. But I thought, you know, great opportunity because they brought in a lot of these, you know, people are nobodies. Um, the kid actor, I looked at his list. It's like, you know, he's 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 not a recognizable face for the American public. So, you know, they could have gone with a nice, you know, young American, Japanese American kid in that role um, to throw a little bit of love back towards Japan. But, you know, I was thinking maybe I'm still on a high from Crazy Rich Asians and and searching and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm they got to come back down to earth and say, nope, this is America. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not ready for that kind of stuff yet. But um, I just I just felt there was a lot of potential and they kind of just spent it all on the CG and the look and the feel. And I know that Kevin said that, you know, the, 
Cyberpunk doesn't need to be that kind of, you know, washed out gray, that kind of matrixy style stuff that we were given back in the in the nineties. And that's true, but as a comic, um, you know, it's it's monochrome, black and white with a lot of grayscale um tonal tonal sheets used and stuff to create the look of the world um and here because of all the vibrant colors all i could think of was wow this kind of feels like they're going for fifth element right that that kind of that kind of look and feel for the sci-fi dystopia and i just it, for me it just didn't feel like the the tone that the author was maybe going for with his original art but it, that was fine the uncanny valley thing did pull me out quite a few times though um, just, it, it was almost like a Roger Rabbit kind of thing where sometimes the model of Elite is in the space with one of the, the, the human actors and it just, it, I just, it wasn't, it was unnatural to me somehow. Um, and the, the thing with the eyes too, I mean, early on there was a lot of criticism about them trying to give her anime eyes and okay, yeah, because she's a cyborg, you can do what you want, but at the same time it, you know, do you need to do that or... If it's not really working, just get an actress and let her act. Maybe I don't know. Um, it just it, it it just pulled me out a few times, but even more so, some of the other cyborgs, um, uh, you know, were because they're they're heads basically. So you've got you know these green screen motion capture of faces, and a lot of that I just was just pulling me out too, and I was seeing it on a big screen digital projection in 3d because it was the only option i had um so yeah i had to suffer through 3d for this but and and maybe that made it worse somehow i i'm not sure but uh the um yeah i just i was surprised that they crammed two and a half volumes into this i would have thought they would have just saved the motorball arc for the second film and, and it you know it looks like they may do that but they already did a lot of the flashy motorball stuff or in this one, which was new because that kind of stuff didn't happen, um, again, in, in the story. It's violent, but it's nowhere near as violent as the manga. I mean, in the manga, it's like you're seeing brains and, and guts and stuff a lot. Um, so even here, it's it's still toned down quite a bit because I think they're going for a more uh, general audience. But yeah, it just uh, between the relationship with Hugo and, and his motorball buddies... Um, and and just the kind of cramming in of a lot of different storylines and the changing of some things uh it just really annoyed me a lot uh, it was it felt far too much like they were really going for the young adult twilight kind of a thing um which just for me doesn't fit the mold of what the original manga was trying to strive for but um you know and they even you know they they killed a character you know who's they kill the characters like, you know, he goes through nine volumes. I'm like, what are they doing? Um, and, yeah, there's a big re character reveal kind of at the end because, you know, there's a big bad and that big bad carries through. So, but, you know, these are interesting arcs and some of the interesting arcs, again, are being downplayed just for the sake of the visuals, which is too bad. The big villain here, there's a there's a big physical villain that she has to fight a few times who's got a really interesting story in the, 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 the comic that's just kind of downplayed here and he's just put on screen for the physicality of it, and which, which is a shame. I think they could have spent more time with that. 
But then again, I guess they felt, well, we're developing for our American audience and they're big and they're dumb and they just want splody splody and, you know, big, big action sequences. And so you get a lot of that. So I think if, you know, if that's your thing, if you like sci-fi and you're not familiar with the manga that much, that it's going to deliver on those levels. And whether you are, you know, okay with uh, buying into the CG aspects of it or not, you know, that will depend on your own preference, of course. But I think if you're somebody who knows the manga and really liked the manga, this is going to be, you know, a disappointment. And this gets us back to the old question of, you know, are there any really good live action adaptations of Japanese properties? Um, and I, you know, I say this having recently watched something like uh, Gintama 2 and Bleach, you know, which were, are both out. Um, I saw, I saw Gintama on uh, Netflix and Bleach on Netflix. And it, you know, I, I wasn't a big follower of those in terms of, of the anime versions, but at least I felt like what they were doing, it felt manga-esque. In, in even though it was live action. So it felt like there was that attempt. But something like this, something like, you know, the Ghost in the Shell live action, there's a disconnect for me somehow where it feels like the filmmakers haven't really somehow tapped into the the feeling of what it is to be a Japanese anime or a Japanese manga property. That They're just not capturing it tonally, and instead it's just another Hollywood property somehow. Um, and I think, it, it, you know, when I think of something like, um, oh, now the name escapes me, the uh, the Appleseed films, if you're familiar with those. Mm-hmm. John, John Woo directed one. They are anime, but the? they are... Yeah, yeah, he did, oh, wow. the, he did the second one, I believe. And they're anime, but they are what they call cartoon render... So they do like these cell shaded 3D renders. So they still look like anime characters, even though they're kind of in cartoon 3D. And I think that might have been, you know, a better way to go with this. But then again, I know that the original author, he was never really big on um, doing an anime version. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this does in Japan, how well how well it's received in Japan. I'd be surprised if it gets a sequel because I don't think it's doing as well as they would have liked. Although I do think I read something that said they've already started on plans for, for a sequel. Um, but I'm very curious to see where they go because they've already changed a significant number of things in, in minor ways that as you extend things out, it means there are, you know, it's kind of like a ripple effect. They're going to be have to be changes further on. Um, with the story in, in some, some aspects. So it'll be, it'll be curious to see uh, where they take it. Will I watch it? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not a terrible film at all. Um, I just think that, if like I said, if you're familiar with the material, you know, prepare yourself. If you're not, you know, just go in and be ready for a long kind of roller coaster ride that you're not going to be sure when it ends. <laughs> but eventually it does. <laughs> and when it does, you're going to be like, wait, it ended. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like the climbing up the slope, and then it's like, oh, it's over. Get off the. Yeah. 
So, you know, come back in two years or something. So, so do I have more to look forward to? Does the, the story get better from where they cut off? It is, depends. Is it... it depends on the kind of thing you like. Like I, for for me, it it the manga really started to trail off after the first uh, couple volumes because I was really kind of interested in the in you know the 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 murders and kind of the that that kind of mystery and and them becoming her becoming a hunter killer and then she goes on um to become this motorball star in for the next few volumes and then after that it goes into a bit more she goes she goes into um something even different so there are these you know these tonal shifts uh throughout the nine volumes which i think feels like they've already done most of it are well yeah it's like it, it's 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 really weird um that they crammed it all in there cuz i i would not have expected that but i'm you know i if they were going to go forward and pick it up where they left off, I'm guessing it's more motorball and then maybe leading into what she gets into in, in the latter three volumes. Um, and then doing the same thing, like, okay, we're done, <laughs> you know, and then coming back. So, um, yeah, I mean, By the way, it's... would you get offended if I call motorball cyberpunk Quidditch? No, not at all. And, and as some That's people have already said, you know, uh, uh, rollerball, right. From what was that? The 19, 19- yeah, I just called it rollerball the entire time. Because some people, because some people said, "Oh, the, you know, this is just copying film things like you know Elysium," and 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 somebody else was saying, you know, well, actually, to to say it copied rollerball is okay because you know rollerball predates the manga. But other things that you've seen, you know, the, the idea of the separation between the rich and the poor that you see in like Elysium, this totally predates that. You know, the, um, so it's 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 quite possible that Elysium was borrowing ideas from the, the Alita stories um, in, in creation of that kind of world building. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting and, and you know, creative ideas that definitely originated through uh, Alita. And I think, again, that's why James Cameron picked up on it. He picked up on the strong female character, which is, a, you know, a significant thing that he likes to use in a lot of his works and, um, you know, and, and some of the other neat ideas that have come out and influenced other science fiction. So we'll see what happens if it goes forward. Uh, one last question, Paul, as a, as a father of a daughter, do you, do you feel, do you think that your daughter, you would like to show it to your daughter someday? Do you think your daughter will have her mind blown seeing that this, you know, female character take the center of the stage in this sci-fi story? It's a very empowering story. I think to those who, who like it. Um, I mean, uh, I it's you know it, in ten years when I think she's maybe ready for this level of violence. Um, ten years. <laughs> yeah, you know. Hey, come on. <laughs> I, I shelter them. Um, she's begging me to watch Star Wars, and and I told her not until you're seven, not until you're seven. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, on that level, yeah, I I I think it would be okay. Um, but I think there are other movies out there too that I think, you know, and hopefully movies to come that that will perhaps be better representations, um, you know, for strong female active characters, sci-fi based characters, you know, um, stuff like that. Um, but that's a good question. Yeah, I'd have to think more on that. I, she wanted to go to the movies with me when I was like, no, no, not. <laughs> Not this one. I'll take it to say tomorrow we're we're going to see how how to train your dragon. So we we did that today, and she 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 had fun for that. So you guys can watch Frozen. You can promise you would take her to Frozen two like five times. <laughs> that won't be enough. 
All right. When we come back, um, we're going to be talking about another sci-fi epic. That is The Wandering Earth. And welcome back. So, uh, as we talked about at the start of the show, The Wandering Earth has been making a lot of big news of late. Um, it has broken into, what, the second highest grossing film out of China, Kevin? Is that right? Yep. Yeah, it surpassed Operation Red Sea, I think, even by the eighth day. And now it's, it's chasing Wolf Warrior, too. But I, but um, it seems like people in China don't think it'll get there because now um, Alita is open and it created a dent. So it, it still has some ways to go. So, mm. yeah. All right. So The Wandering Earth, if you're not familiar, uh, is based on a bit of science fiction literature out of China um, and... Yeah, if I can get the uh, name correct, it is uh, Liu Xixin, Liu Xixin, um, who is the original author. He's quite a prolific science fiction author. He is the author of another famous work called The Three-Body Problem, um, which is a trilogy, actually, of science fiction stories, if I understand um, the literature correctly. And that has actually been in production. I think it's been completed, but it's been shelved for one reason or another. Is that right, Kevin? Do you remember... Did that get finished or the story? The, what the, the three-body problem was supposed to be trilogy, I think, the films. Yeah. Um, the f- but I think and- they did the first film and it was either close to completion or completed like a year or so ago and then they just decided the, the not produc- to release it. Well, the production, the actual shooting, I think, was finished. But I think during the editing process or in the, during the post-production, they, they shelved it they shelved entirely. It, right? Yeah. Like, so I'm guessing they realized the director wasn't any good, that the entire footage didn't even work. So mm-hmm. I think they just decided to not even spend the money to do post, because, you know, a film like that is going to do, it's going to take a lot of money to do post-production, you right. know, special effects and all that stuff. So I think they just decided not even to finish it. So here we have another of his novels, The Wandering Earth, um, this coming from director Frant Guo, who uh, not a really prolific China film director. Um, he's got a couple titles under his belt. Uh, but apparently good enough to take on this property and with a cast like Wu Jing, among others, uh, you know, leading the four, you were kind of expecting it to do fairly well, but maybe not as well as it's doing. The story basically is set in the distant future when the expanding sun threatens to destroy all life on Earth. The world mobilizes under the UEG, United Earth Government, with a plan to move the Earth using a series of massive engines that circumvent the globe. Um, Near the end of his tour on duty on board a navigational space station, astronaut Liu Peng, played by Wu Jing, is due to return home to Earth to rejoin his family. But as the Earth approaches Jupiter, the gravitational pull causes unforeseen problems for the Earth's massive engines. Meanwhile, after a bit of mischief, Liu 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 Pei Chang's children who live planetside, um, Liu Qi and Dodo, find themselves caught on the surface as the sudden gravitational shifts begin to cause environmental havoc. 
With the odds of survival growing smaller as the world is under threat of being torn apart, they wonder if they'll ever get a chance of being together as a family once more. Um, so yeah, this is an interesting film. Wu Jing bringing some gravity, quote-unquote, to a non-martial role. Um, so yeah, he's not doing his normal sort of uh, martial arts, you know, action. He's got a little bit of action here, I would say, but it's definitely, you know, something very different from him. It was nice to see him in... He was given a lot of sort of special appearance credit and thanks in, in the credits. And I thought he was just going to be like a small cameo, but he's actually got some significant screen time um, here. So um, His character, I think, from what I've heard, is that was supposed to be a cameo, but then actually Wu Jing helped out and invested in the film because mm-hmm. um, they ran out of budget. So they ended up giving you a big, bigger role. Uh-huh. Than that that makes now. sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, we also have um, Mantat here, and it's fun to see him. Uh, if even though he's dubbed, if you're watching the uh, you know original Mandarin version, um, and it's a big sci-fi kind of disaster movie. It's got all your big standard blockbuster cliches. There's a big motivational monologue at one point. Uh, things not going right, moments of destruction that make you just go, hmm, how could anybody possibly survive that? Uh, but they do. And, you know, it's got moments when you know certain characters just aren't going to make it, and they don't. So if you like that kind of stuff, I mean, we're talking like, you know, Day After Tomorrow, uh, 2012, those kind of, you know, big effects-heavy, light-on-character, but still you're kind of interested to see what happens Um that kind of stuff, I think you'll really be into this. Now, my inner science nerd had so many questions at so many points in this. It's if if you are kind of like that, um, it's probably best just to turn your brain off and enjoy the ride here. Um, because, yeah, there's just like so many things, you know, that are running through my brain as all this stuff on screen is happening and you know you're 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 seeing these solutions to problems and then you would just think well wouldn't that cause other problems and what are the solutions to those and maybe the literature does address that i don't know i haven't had a chance to read it but i'm very interested after watching this movie to go and uh, start reading this so that's a good thing in my mind if a movie you know it has enough there to inspire me to want to go and find out more uh, about the story. Um, there is a strong family dynamic message here that I think is perfect for the Lunar New Year. It's got this sensibility of, you know, wanting to go home, returning home, getting together with the family, even if it's the end of the world, right? Um, and I think that message is, works really, really well. I would have never thought that you could take a kind of Lunar New Year sensibility and mash it up into a big you know, spectacle sci-fi feature, but they did it and it works. Um, narratively, I mean, it, the movie is a mashup of different ideas. There are aspects here that you can see taken out of 2001 um, movie. You know, there are action pieces that seem very much like they're drawn out of the movie Gravity. Um, and because, you know, the Earth is moving through space away from the sun, basically the whole planet up top side is frozen over. Um, so you've got a lot of visuals that are very reflective of something like the day after tomorrow and some of the challenges that, you know, you face when you're in an environment like that are are present there as well. Um, so sci-fi wise, not anything really new, but it is new for China, for a China production and one on this scale, which I think is great. It is it's just fantastic to see 
you know, a cast like this that is not, you know, they're not all Americans. They're not all, um, you know, walking to in slow motion to a rock and roll song kind of a thing. You know, it's 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 got that sensibility of being something we've seen before, but so different that it's refreshing in in a, in a sense. And I really enjoyed that. Um, again, like I said, it's because of the tropes that are there. It's not anything that you haven't seen before, really. But, um, you know, that that just, you know, makes it feel like something familiar, yet something new. Um, the the special effects themselves, too, seem like a blend of old and new techniques. Of course, you've got a lot of CGI, but it looks like they've got um, some great sort of landscape, um, traditional work that you might have seen, like in old sci-fi films of old. There's some great attention to detail, um, not just in the backgrounds, but in the set designs. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to look at. You would think that, well, you know, you're dealing with a lot of snow terrain and a lot of ice terrain, but they really, you know, they, they make it interesting because you can do stuff like that and make it boring day after tomorrow. Um, or you can do something <laughs> and make it more interesting to look at, which they do here. Uh, this is, like I said, a China-centric movie based on a Chinese novel about events that mostly happen in the region of China and or Asia. Uh, and that's fine. There's no significant flag waving here compared to something like Wolf Warrior 2. Um, there's a bit of global recognition, you know, because, again, you're dealing with this thing called the United United uh, Earth Government, um, which is, you know, the, the, some, some of the people you see and you hear from are not China. They're not CCP people. So, you know, it's, it's interesting in that aspect. There's no significant American presence. I think I saw one shot of an American flag at one point. But it, there doesn't need to be because this is still very much about Chinese astronauts and, and you know, Chinese families in the region of China and, you know, them dealing with this big global problem that, that's happening. But at the same time, that famille, you know, style connection um, that's kind of at the heart of Chinese culture, which I think some people, you know, they might not care about that. But for me, it was, again, an interesting added bit of context. Um, so if you're somebody who likes big brainless blockbusters, I think you'll really have fun with this. Um, there's, you know, there's enough here in terms of set pieces and action that, uh, it, again, makes it entertaining, even if you're not, you know, super gung-ho about Chinese films, but you just like the average sci-fi film. I think there's enough here to you know, for you to come away with a good amount of enjoyment for your dollar. I am curious, that, though, as I said, I would do want to go and see if the book fleshes out some of the more scientific ideas in greater detail um, than the film does, because while the film's pretty to look at, again, it just it doesn't go into too much of the science of what's happening. And so for the more scientifically minded, you're going to walk away with a lot of head scratching and going, wait, what about this? What about that? What about this? Um, and they're really more interested in telling just sort of the, the straightforward narrative here than answering a lot of those questions. So maybe the book will help me answer that. Um, now, this is not something that I know was getting a lot of discussion in Hong Kong, um, but it was getting, you know, some worldwide play. So as Kevin mentioned at the start of the show, it got pulled in. So w what's the buzz over there, Kevin? Do you think this is going to get some butts in seats or how do you think it's going to play? It's in the news a lot, but of course, um, the media in Hong Kong already has a preconception that they call it the space version of World War II. Um, 
Yeah, I know. I know. There's a lot of preconception about the film, and I don't blame them for having it, but you figured that a good media entity would have better ideas. But Hong Kong, unfortunately, as much as I support the free press, Hong Kong media is not known for the quality of reporting, um, especially to things like that, or they're not very good at hiding their biases, so that's what they're calling it. But there is a lot of talk about this film. I'm part of this online community here um, that you know, already sort of have a thing for sci-fi films, and they are talking about it every day. Every day. Um, of course, that doesn't necessarily equal to mainstream opinions, but like I said, there's it, it, the buzz was big enough that the distributor, um, the local Hong Kong distributor, got it very quickly because there wasn't any plan to release it here. Um, but it was rapidly snapped up, and it was put into, it was announced for release a week ahead of the release date, which almost, which is very rare, even in Hong Kong. Um, they sort of trying to get onto that bandwagon while it's still very, uh, very much a hot topic. Um, although you never know with Chinese films, mainland Chinese films, they, they're always been a wild card. They never do the business that Hong Kong films do, um, here, at least not yet. So who knows? Maybe would this film gonna break out? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Um, but like, actually, there is a lot of talk about this film here in Hong Kong. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snow's Radio Orchestra. Research from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can find us on email at eastscreen at gmail.com and on Facebook at East S West S. As always, please follow along with Kevin and all that he does. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, you can read my stuff on Discovery and Silk Road magazines. They're on Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragon. Um, we also have a digital version of Discovery. Um, I think it's called discovery.cathaypacific.com. Right now, I have a huge article of uh, 20 famous Hong Kong film locations that you may not know about. For example, um, I did not do IFC 2 for once. I know everyone wants to do IFC 2 because that's The Dark Knight. I did not mention that kind of stuff. So there might be some interesting things that you find out on that article. So you can find that on discovery.cathypacific.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the golden rock. That's one word, the golden rock. Um, I also sometimes visit and update a website called Asia in cinema. That's three words. Well, the URL is asiaincinema.com. Asia in cinema. That's one word. Dot um, com. You can um, contact me uh, if you want to see me at a film festival. You want to pay me for a speaking engagement or uh, any any translation work or even just comments about the show. You can email me at kevin at asiaincinema.com. Um, quick reminder, the Hong Kong International Film Festival announces their lineup this coming week. Or if you're listening to this now, it's already been announced. Uh, so that's happening mid-March. Um, do take a look. I have subtitled um, and vetted the subtitles for at least three or five of the classic films that are in the lineup this year. Um, so rest assured, those subtitles will at least be legible.
All right, excellent. And please do check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network. Uh, next show, what do you think we'll be talking about, sir? What's coming? What is coming? Um, oh, God, I should have made plans to watch that Malaysian New New Year movie now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> um, who knows? We may be taking... I'm going to bring my microphone over to uh, Amsterdam um, because that's where I'm, I'm going there next weekend. Uh, I'm going to be bringing that over there um, so we can see what's coming. I could talk about Gully Boy, which is this incredible Bollywood film that I've seen. Um, it's a, sort of the Indian 8 Mile um, that I love. I would love to talk about. All right, excellent. Uh, I don't know what's on my agenda as yet. I do know that uh, Mojin the Worm Valley has just dropped up on Yoku, so I might take a gander at that. We'll see. Um, but we'll have something. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green West Green Podcast saying, don't let your earth wander without a chaperone, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.